Good morning, everyone. Oh, so wonderful to see so many bright and shiny faces. We were sitting here, I loved just watching streams of devotees, angels, kind of walking down from pathway to pathway and congregating here. Let's start with a prayer. Heavenly Father, Father, Divine Mother, Mother, Friend, Beloved God, Great Masters, masters, Jesus Christ, Christ, Babaji Krishna, Lahiri Mahashaya, Swami Sri Yukteswar, Beloved Guru, Paramahansa Yoganandaji, Saints of all religions, we humbly bow to you all. O Beloved Lord, we come here to receive thy teachings, thy love, thy joy. Fill us with thy presence and help us be channels to bring thy light to everyone we meet. Om. Peace. Amen. Please be seated. So, welcome everyone to Spiritual Renewal Week, sharing the heart of Yogananda, and let's begin with some music. So the choir, please come up. Understand. 
So good morning again, everyone. You know, this is the, what is it, this 46th uh, Spiritual Renewal Week. We started in 1969, and it's been a continual tradition since that time. And of course, Master had started before that the tradition of uh, convocation where he had a week-long series of classes. So Swamiji, because his whole life was dedicated to doing whatever it took to extend Master's mission into the world, so he obviously chose to continue that beautiful tradition, and we've carried it on all these years. And we have some people who have been coming for virtually all of those, not just the residents here, but some visitors. Jeff, are you here somewhere? He's There he is. I think he's got the record for the most 
either continuous or maybe he had to miss one year, but it's been like 30 years or something. Anyway, it's a wonderful, wonderful tradition. This year for Spiritual Renewal Week, we're going to share the theme of sharing the heart of Yogananda. This is a theme that Ananda has been using during this year in order to partly to coordinate the efforts of all of our different communities and centers, but partly to have a clear focal point for which we want to, through which we want to empower the energy of Master's mission. And so sharing the heart of Yogananda is kind of like a campaign that we've had. And we've had a lot of teachers going out. We've had people going. Asha has gone to the East Coast, and others have, Davy and I also. We've had people going to uh, Southern California. We've had people going to the Midwest. Riman and Padma went to the um, to Michigan and those areas, and other people have gone all around the country to bring Master's teachings. And as you're going to see, this is absolutely in the tradition of what Master himself did and, of course, what Swamiji also did. In addition to people going out, we've tried to use this theme of sharing the heart of Yogananda as a focal point for other things that we do, our websites, our online classes, and other ways that we reach out to, um, to people around the world. Ananda now has grown over these last 46 years from 1969 into a truly international work. And so as we as we grow and have centers all around the world, it's very helpful to have all of us focused on a single theme for the year because it helps to magnetize and, and there's a resonance that happens. So the energy builds and builds. But this morning, Davy and I are going to talk about uh, sharing the heart of Yogananda, that theme, but specifically how Yogananda coming to the West and especially to America, how he changed the consciousness of the world, changed the consciousness of the West. And that has been something that he came here and now his teachings are going back to India. Uh, probably 10 or 15 years ago, many people in India had read Master's book. But his work was not really alive there. And since that time, it's grown more and more alive until many of you may know that the prime minister of India, Modi, uh, came to the U.S. and presented to the United Nations the thought of having an international day of yoga. And so the U.N. accepted that. And so when the uh, International Day of Yoga began to be sent out, the, you know, before it was going to happen, they had to alert people. They had what they called icons of yoga. These are the great teachers of yoga. And Master was the person chosen to go on the front page of this worldwide movement. 
And so masters coming here, awakening the West, and that that energy spreading around the world has really brought yoga into the modern age. And I don't want to get too sectarian. Obviously, we love Master. Obviously, he is the one for us who has brought this energy. But many others have also added, this is, after all, not Yogananda's work, it's God's work. And Yogananda and all of us are serving God in trying to bring this light, which is yoga, meditation, Kriya Yoga, these deep teachings are the proper way for mankind to try to relate to and connect with the divine during this age of Dwapara Yuga. And because it's an age of energy, the teachings that Yogananda brought primarily have to do with energy. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But let me give a kind of a broad arc of Yogananda's life. Most of us, probably everyone here, and by the way, there are many, many people also watching online from around the world. Most of the people participating this morning have read the autobiography of a yogi, and we have a clear idea of what Master's life was like as he grew up, as he met these great, great saints in India, as he met his guru and received training under Sri Yukteswar and got the vision and then the blessing of Babaji to come and bring these teachings to the West in 1920. And so he took the first ship that left India after World War I from India to the U.S., the city of Sparta, and he came on that ship and arrived in New York in the fall of 1920. He was alone. He had $500 in his pocket, and he had an invitation from the uh, American liberal philosophical society, the, uh, um, an invitation to speak on yoga, but he didn't know English very well. Davy's going to talk more about that. I just want to get him to America. <laughs> so here, here it is, and he arrives in America, and his first lecture in America was on October 6th, 1920. He was living in Boston primarily, although he moved around a little bit on the East Coast. It took him a few years to get kind of his roots down and established. And so he gave some early lectures on the East Coast. And then starting in about 1924, so four years after he arrived here, he began what he called his spiritual campaigns, his intercontinental campaigns. And I'm going to talk quite a bit about that uh, to give you a real sense of what that was like. But this was the time that he went around to many, many, many cities around America 
and he gave classes and lectures. We've probably all seen pictures of him, for instance, at Carnegie Hall or in a big auditorium with hundreds, thousands of people attending that. Well, he went gradually the as his popularity grew, and it grew very quickly. He went around the country from city to city and spoke at the largest auditoriums that were available. Now, we have the idea that he kind of came into town, gave a lecture to three or 4,000 people, and then went on. Not at all. He would come and he would spend a week, two weeks, a month, two months in a city, and he would give classes. He would give free lectures. He would meet with every possible group In America in those days, they had things like Lions Clubs and Elks Clubs and Women's Clubs and Men's Clubs and Business Clubs. And he would meet with those during the day as his popularity grew. He had an enormous correspondence. At that time, he was also doing books. His early books and pamphlets were between 1922, 23, 24, and uh, Songs of the Soul was in that time. His early lessons were in that time. He was incredibly busy. And so from about 1924 until he left for India at the behest of his guru, you know that he went back to India in 1936, went to Europe on the way there. So until he went there, he was almost continually on the road. He did in 1925, buy the property of Mount Washington. In fact, in Easter of 1925, he gave the first service there, even though they didn't own the place. He gave a Sunday service at the property, and it was really miraculous what he was able to pull together in order to purchase that property. And from that time on, Uh, there was at least a place for those sincere devotees who wanted to live this life. There was a place for them to be. But for Yogananda, being on the road, it meant that not only did he have to generate the energy and the money for these road trips, we think, oh, thousands of people, he must have really been well off. He was scratching. He was trying to keep two nickels together because the expenses of these tours were very large. And so he not only had the expenses of the tours, he had the expenses of keeping Mount Washington and all of the monks and nuns who were living there, of keeping them going because it wasn't like that was a money-making proposition. And so he had this tremendous... Uh, kind of load, one might say, on him. And yet he was putting out enormous energy. At one time he said to someone about, uh, because of course this was during the time of America's Great Depression. We're talking about the 1930s here and the the terrible depression that that took over America. He, someone asked him how to get a job 
when there weren't jobs. And he said, if I needed a job, I would churn the ether until the universe gave me a job. He had this tremendous power, and it was with that tremendous power that he was churning the ether of America at that time. And so hundreds of thousands of people came and heard him lecture and took his classes, and and he was also starting the written lessons at that time. So people were coming, but they weren't necessarily staying. By about the time that he went to India, he uh, Rajasi Janakananda did not come very early on in the picture. It was 1932 when Rajasi came. Rajasi, master thought of Rajasi as the other half of this work in America. He said it was his job. Master said it's my job to work and give these classes and give these teachings, but Rajarshi was the engine that helped support that. I can't get much closer. He's motioning me to get closer. I'm going to swallow the microphone. So Rajarshi was the engine that helped to support the work. And so when he came, finally, Master had someone that he could count on to help financially. Now, you might think, well, that's kind of cheeky of him. They were... I don't really need them anyway. They were brothers from the past. Master said that he was Arjuna at the time of uh, Kurukshetra, you know, Krishna, Arjuna, the Pandavas. And Rajashi was his younger brother, Nakula. And so that relationship was not something that was just casual or just business. They, they were born in order to do this mission. These great, great masters come in order to bring this energy. And their mission was not just a little one. It was... Swami has said that he feels that Master is the avatar for Dwapara Yuga. And so their mission was to plant the seeds and churn the ether so that the energy of Dwapara Yuga and the right way to worship and relate to God during this time, this Yuga, this era that we're in, was well and firmly planted. And then about the time that he went to India, he wrote Rajashi, and he said he felt now to move back to Mount Washington. He said, in fact, that all these lectures were a little bit like writing on water, that you wrote, and soon after, nothing much happened. You may have heard the story that he told Swami that uh, when he gave uh, classes in uh, Minneapolis, there were 5,000 people in the Philharmonic Auditorium in Minneapolis that came and took those classes, listened to that lecture, li- those lectures. And someone said, oh, Master, this is wonderful. This will really build the work. And Master said, there may be 5,000 here, but 
if we get five sincere devotees out of this, we'll be fortunate. And so he said after the time that he went to India about that phase that now he was going to stay at Mount Washington and let the devotees come to him rather than him going out. That didn't mean that he didn't continue to do things. He was on the radio. I mean, 1935, 36, he started doing programs on the radio, giving Sunday service on the radio or Sunday talks on the radio. He was still, of course, putting out enormous energy. But the time of his travels day after day after day and month after month, that time was over. And he was focusing during this time on writing the book that was going to change the world, the autobiography of a yogi. And so from 1936 on, after he came back and was more centered in Mount Washington and Encinitas at that time of the 1936 trip to India, Rajashi bought Encinitas property for him as a surprise when he came back. And so Master had Encinitas and he wanted, tried to start a colony there, uh, a community, the first community there. But it wasn't the right time. It had to wait till we will incarnated, frankly, uh, for communities to really be able to take place. But so Master was writing. He was uh, putting out enormous energy. And then in 46, the autobiography came out. And that began a landswell that went out. And now millions and millions of people have been touched and brought onto the path through that work. And so then it was almost like after that was a little bit toward the end phase of his life. Swami came to him in 1948, but Master was more, a little bit withdrawn at that time. He was writing the commentaries for the uh, Gita, which he finished in 1950, and he was a little bit more withdrawn. And he also started having these great samadhi experiences where essentially his outer work was winding down a little bit, but the inner power was then released to come out. And he had these great, you know, long periods of being in samadhi at that time. He was always in samadhi in the background, but in the foreground, he had the work to do. And so then toward the end of his life, he took on karma for the devotees that were there and for the world, really. He had uh, severe leg pains and knee pains that he said he could see the astral demons like corkscrews uh, trying to go into his knees and... Uh, so he was taking on karma. He was, of course, always taking on karma. And then his passing in 1952 happened. So that gives a sense of the arc of his life. But now I want to talk about what he was doing during that time. What was, How was he changing the West during the time 
of these great lectures. First of all, the West, when he came in 1920, was completely, basically unaware of the existence of yoga and meditation. Swami Vivekananda had come to the World's Fair in 1896, I believe it was, and there was a little bit of a splash, but then nothing followed up from there. The first English translation of the Bhagavad Gita was done during the American Revolution. And so, 1776. And isn't that amazing? And so that was the first time that in the English-speaking world had any access to these great teachings and scriptures. But it certainly had not spread throughout America. And so a number of things that Master brought that now seem like, well, of course, common knowledge, everybody knows that, were absolutely revolutionary. First of all, there were many, many people that felt God exists. You know, I mean, America had a strong tradition of Christianity and our country, after all, was founded by people coming here for religious freedom. So the idea that God exists, that was there. But Master brought a concept that is a big, big step further. And that is that only God exists. Nothing else exists except God. Everything in creation is a manifestation of his consciousness. Now that, for us, seems, well, sure. That, that seems easy. For America, especially at that time, see, the, the typical Christian and other religions, Judeo-Christian, those religions, don't see creation as an extension of God, they see creation as something that God does that is separate from him. And so if you're separate from the creator, there's no hope that you can merge with the creator. The best you can do is either be pleasing to him or worship him or be afraid of him or somehow have a relation. But then at the end of life, you're going to die. And if you've done a pretty good job or a splendid job, depending on what church you belong to, then you go to a heaven or you go to a hell. And that heaven and that hell is eternal. And so you have one life. And if you mess it up, you spend the next trillion years in hell. Or if you have a good life, then you go and you spend the next trillion years in your body in pleasant circumstances. But that's the concept because you can't merge with God. You can only reap the fruits of your action. And so the concept of merging with God of moksha, of complete release from the 
identity, the self-identity that's separate from God, that's a concept that was known in India, but completely unknown in the West. And so Master called moksha self-realization. It was a very good term for it. So you realize your own self, and that own self is identical with the creator, or at least it's a spark, but indivisible from the creator. So there's that mergence. So God exists. He's the only thing that exists. And not only can we merge with him, but our only real purpose is to merge with him. That too is a radical thought. We're still trying to convince people of that one. Then that there are actually techniques that can help you accomplish that purpose. There are techniques of meditation. There are techniques of energization. There are most especially um, the meditation and concentration techniques that help the mind and the personality which obscures our unity with God that helps that dampen down enough to quiet down, to become silent. See, if we already are a part of God, we can't earn being a part of God. We already have it. But we don't realize it. And so we, there's some disconnect there. And that disconnect is what yoga is all about, is to get rid of that disconnect, to realize self-realization, to realize who we really are as our own self, not as something different, not as something outside. So these great techniques that Master brought, and many, many of his teachings and his lessons were on these techniques of yoga and and that's our spiritual path that we all practice together because that tradition that master started has come down very very purely through swami and through our lives so we are living what master brought to the west in as his recommendation of how to live now another concept that he brought was that if you're sincere about your spirituality, a hundred years before him, 500, a thousand years ago, if you were sincere, the only thing that you could do was leave society and go and join a monastery or go to the Himalayas or, but it, it meant removing yourself from the world because the world was so dark and the energy was so downpulling that you could not stay in the world and achieve this great goal of self-realization. Master said that that is no longer true in this age. We do not need to leave society. It wasn't just Master. Uh, uh, Lahiri Mahashaya, that is the drama of when he was in the Himalayas with Babaji and Babaji said, there is a reason I did not call you to me. 
until you had a wife and children and uh, some worldly responsibilities. And then Babaji sent Lahiri back to Benares and he spent the next 25 years as an accountant for the British. You know, that's a little different from the only way you can find God is to stay here with me in the Himalayas in this cave. And so there's a sea change going on here. And so Master's teachings were about that sea change. So many, many, many of his lectures and classes were about the proper attitudes. And he gave class after class on business principles, on diet, on marriage, on how to attract your ideal mate, on uh, India's contribution to America's business practices. And so extremely practical. So practical spirituality was another. And so now we say, well, of course, but that was absolutely unknown. It was revolutionary at the time master came and began teaching in that way. So another revolutionary teaching that he brought, and now it's widely accepted. By the way, when he came, you could probably count on your fingers and toes the number of people who meditated in this country. Now, the I just checked the latest statistics are that around 18 million people in the U.S. meditate. That's 8% of the population. So during his lifetime, we went from basically zero to 18 million presently. Now that's a revolution. So another thing that he taught, and taught in many, many different ways, and is now completely accepted, but was they thought he was insane at the time, was the mind-body-soul connection. That what we eat could influence how we think. When Dr. Peter was in medical school, that concept was, they, they didn't teach that. And in fact, they taught the opposite, that your diet doesn't have anything to do with your health basically, or it has a little bit to do with it, but only your physical health. It couldn't affect the mind. So this mind-body connection. And not only is the body better and healthier if it's fed correctly, that the real food is prana. And Master, again, part of his teachings, and we're still trying to get this one down too, is that we exist not because of food, not because of water, not because of air and sunlight. Those are just vehicles. They're transport systems for prana. And we are kept alive by prana. And that by our mind, by our will, we can draw more prana into us. And so... It's not only that the mind gets you at the breakfast table. It's that the mind and the willpower is the vehicle through which you are actually fed. And you're fed with prana. And behind prana, which is energy, is spirit. 
And so you can use your will to direct that energy to the body cells, which is the energization. That was the second pamphlet he ever published was about his Yagoda system of uh, will uh, energizing the body. And so it was primary teachings, but this mind-body connection that we now understand, and it's in every newspaper on health or article on health that you read, basically, that was revolutionary at the time of Master. And that the spirit behind that consciousness manifests itself kind of like a, a one can think of vibrationally, spirit is at a very, very high vibration that cannot be perceived through the senses. But it has to come to a lower vibration, and that lower vibration is prana and energy, and that we can't quite see that. Most people can't anyway. Some people see auras. But by and large, we can't see it with our eyes or hear it, but we can pick it up with instruments. And then finally, that vibration lowers down still further and produces the physical body. And we can see and feel and touch. The senses work on the physical plane, but not on these other planes. And so part of Master's teachings is one to show this not just connection, but that it's all one thing. All of it is consciousness. All of it is God. But it's just God vibrating at different levels. And our job for meditators, for those of us who are seeking self-realization to merge back to that, is to still our minds so that we can perceive and feel that connection on subtler vibrational levels. And so that's another very revolutionary teaching of Master. He taught that if you meditate and if inwardly you can see light at the spiritual eye while you're meditating, he said that that has an effect on the physical body, that that actually changes the brain cells. Well, in 1920, 1930, for someone to say that, the scientists, the doctors, just kind of laughed and said, the guy is nuts. Now we have the instruments that actually show that to be true. Meditation changes the structure of the brain and it changes the function of the brain on a physical level. So this interrelationship of spirit, energy, and physical is the barriers between that that Master started to break down and did as well as he could during his time. Those are further breaking down until gradually we will see during this age of energy that at the very least there is no difference between our physical body and our energy body except vibrationally. But Master came to plant those seeds. And so... I think, uh, think I'll just end this aspect of it by the other thing that Master brought 
and affects all of us in a very, very central way is spiritual communities, world brotherhood communities. He said, basically, if you're seeking self-realization, then why not gather together with other people seeking self-realization? And if you're going to gather together, why not make that gathering more permanent? Why not live together with others seeking self-realization? And that that concept, those world brotherhood colonies, will be the lifestyle for Dwapara Yuga. And we're just at the very, very beginning of planting those seeds and and getting them well established. I want to give you just a sense of Master's energy during the time of the campaigns that he had. As I said, he went from city to city, but I decided that it would be worthwhile to write out some of these. Uh, In 1923 just before he started the Intercontinental Tours, he did four months of classes in New York City. And that was kind of the, that that was the springboard. Then between 1924 and 1927, he went to Philadelphia for a month. He went to Seattle for two weeks. He went to Portland for 10 days. By the way, Portland and Seattle, where we have colonies, were two of the first stops on his first ever intercontinental tour. So Portland and Seattle. He spent two months in San Francisco giving classes. He spent a week in Oakland. And while he was in Oakland, he stayed at the Palace Hotel, which is an obscure fact, but not so obscure is the fact that the staff, hotel staff photographer, took the photo, which we know as the standard pose during that time. Fun fact, isn't it? Then he went to L.A. for two months, Long Beach, Fresno, and he wrote Dr. Lewis during this time, and I quote, My life has become strangely busy. (laughs) Every night, except a few nights in a month, I have to lecture. I have to write books, answer myriads of letters, and prepare lectures. Then, as his popularity began to grow, he went to L.A. for a week-long series of classes at the Philharmonic Auditorium. So you can see he's not just kind of sneaking into town and doing something quietly. He is, by now, the most popular lecturer in America. And thousands and thousands of people. Then he went to Chicago for a month, Rochester, New York, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, New York again for a week-long series of classes at Carnegie Hall. And so you can see how this is building and building. So I'm not going to go on because you get an idea of what what he did. But when he was in a city, he was busy day and night, all the time. And he was churning the ether and churning the ether in order to produce the magnetism. You know, he 
among his other teachings is that the greater the will, the greater the flow of energy. Will can be translated as willingness or enthusiasm. So his enthusiasm to serve God, to bring these teachings was endless, was the power of an avatar. So that enormous enthusiasm to bring these teachings to the West, after all, that's why he incarnated. He said, I will come again and again as long as one stray brother is left crying by the wayside. And so he came to bring these teachings for all of us. And with that enormous enthusiasm came this enormous flow of energy. And in the early years, he used to do some kind of stage tricks to show how much energy he could have. You know, we've heard of him being in Boston and inviting uh, someone to come up and push him against the wall and that they wouldn't be able to hold him there and that eight big burly policemen came up and kind of were going to show him. Probably typical Irish. I'm <laughs> looking at Ananta here. So think of eight people like Ananta getting up there and pushing Master against the wall. And he said, are you ready? And I said, yes, we're ready. And he flicks his back like that, and they tumble into the orchestra pit. <laughs> so he did some kind of, uh, I don't know, some pizzazzy things to awaken the, the awareness and enthusiasm among people. But that tremendous energy that he was putting out, what is the next? Enthusiasm, will creates energy. Energy creates what? magnetism and that's what he was doing he was magnetizing this country he was magnetizing this planet and he was magnetizing this age that we live in with these life-changing liberating teachings and by the time he was ready to release the autobiography of a yogi that book has changed the lives of millions and millions of people. There is virtually no teacher in America of spirituality, of kind of new age spirituality, one might say, who not only has not read that book, but that book being a core of what they are. So I've talked a lot about what Yogananda did. Let me just end by touching a bit on what Yogananda was. What is the real heart of Yogananda? Because that, after all, is what we're really wanting to convey. And that just looking at what a person did does not touch that. Master was an avatar. That means someone who has no ego and no reason, no need, no compulsion to incarnate again, but because of the compassion that he had, that he would return again and again, his feet bleeding over crags of suffering if need be, that compassion that he had resulted in him being the vehicle to come at this time. And so his coming at this time was essentially an expression of God's love and God's compassion for all of us. 
And he himself said that of all of the qualities of God, that he came manifesting particularly three of them. Love, which is, he it just infused everything that he did. So love, joy, and wisdom. And this great, these great campaigns were that combination of love, joy, and wisdom. And that quality, that DNA came into Swami, or Swami came with it as the vehicle to bring that same vibration to the world. And it is that which has also come into all of us, the desire to find God, the joy in doing that, and the loving desire to help others. And that's what this year's campaign and this year's topic of sharing the heart of Yogananda is meant to convey. yet <laughs> well <clears throat> it's such an honor to be able to share master's life his vibration with all of you and as we were preparing for our talks just immersing ourselves in master's vibration his life I just thought that's all it's really about it's to be able to immerse ourselves in that vibration. And if I could just telepathically convey that to all of you, we wouldn't need words, but not yet, not yet. So also I want to welcome all of our guests who have come, some from great distances, to join us. And this is, I think, will be a week that will change all of our lives. So Jyotish spoke so clearly and eloquently, as he always does, about what Master did. But I want to do a little flashback. So I'm going to go to how is it, what was it that led to this, what, everything he's been describing. So let's start on September 19, 1920. A boat docks in Boston Harbor. It had departed, departed from Calcutta, as we said, on August 2nd. And after that long journey, a young man of 27 years, not of great stature, he embarked for the first time on the shores of America. We have a friend who lives in Boston who was an immigrant from Russia. And he said, you know, I came just as Master did to this country, knowing no one, having little wealth with me, and I thought to feel a connection with my guru, I would research what it was like when he landed. So he did some research in the Boston Maritime uh, archives and found the ship's manifest, the city of Sparta, and it's fascinating. There he was, it's all written down. Name, Mukundalal Ghosh. Formal name, Swami Paramahansa excuse me, Swami Yogananda Giri. Height, not very tall, five foot five, black hair, fair complexion, brown eyes, with a marked scar on his forearm 
perhaps from a boil or something that got lanced. He came, not as Jotish said, he, 500, he had $200 in his pocket that his father had given him. His profession, he wrote down because it had to be all. I mean, how could he say, I am an avatar who has come to move the West? <laughs> so he said he was the principal of the Brahmacharya Vidyalaya school in Ranchi, India, 120 pupils, and that he had come by the invitation of the International Congress of Religious Liberals to give a talk. And when asked if he had any political opinions, he said, no, I am not a political liberal, but I am a religious liberal. And so he, what he was trying to say is, no boundaries here. And so he landed here on these shores. But even before he landed, you know, it's, I was thinking, nothing in the life of an avatar is random. Even the name of the ship, the city of Sparta, you all know probably the history of Sparta uh, from uh, the history of Greece, that great city-state known for its great warriors, disciplined from childhood to protect and conquer, not conquer, but to protect all those who might invade Greece. And so... And what it's basically known for is that great battle of Thermopylae when the hundreds of thousands, literally, of the Persian army are invading Greece from the north. And those 300, the great 300 Spartan warriors, held off single-handedly the hundreds of thousands of Persians till they could be relieved from ships coming up from southern Greece. They were killed to the man. They gave everything they had, but they stopped the Persian army. And one might think of that as the influx of materialism. And there's Master on the city of Sparta coming to the west. I will stop single-handedly, if need be, the influx of materialism, and I will hold my ground, bloodied but unbowed, as he said. And so even on board the ship, this is what Jotish was starting to allude to, it's a little tricky because we tell each other what we're going to say a little bit before. (laughs) And I say, now don't talk about that. And I watched him catch himself and stop. He was going there. But he stopped. So while on board the ship, he was invited to give a talk on what was it the title? The Battle of Life and How to Fight It. And he stood there. It was his first lecture in English. He had studied a bit of English in, while he was in India. But he stood there and he said, every aspect of the English language left me. And I stood there frozen for 10 minutes. Can you imagine if I would stand here for 10 minutes? And he said, finally, the audience began realizing what had happened, and they began to laugh. And he prayed to his guru, Sri Akteshwar. He said, help me. And he heard this voice saying, and this was the beginning of his mission. He heard Sri Akteshwar's voice saying, you can speak. 
and he said for the next 45 minutes, he gave a talk in perfect English. He has no memory, he said, of what he said, but he asked others, was my English okay? They said, perfect. And that was the beginning of moving forward and everything that Jyotish spoke about afterwards. But then let's even take a further flashback. Let's talk about what was the preparation and the purpose of the masters in sending Yoganandaji, our dearest guru, to the West. And let me just read a brief passage, a paragraph from Autobiography. The Mahavatar, Babaji, is in constant communion with Christ. Together they send out vibrations of redemption and have planned the spiritual technique of salvation for this age. The work of these two fully illumined masters, one with the body, Babaji, and one without it, Christ, is to inspire the nations to forsake, see if this sounds familiar, to forsake suicidal wars, race hatreds, religious sectarianism, and the boomerang evils of materialism. Babaji is well aware of the trend of modern times, especially of the influence and complexities of Western civilization, and realizes the necessity of spreading the self-liberations of yoga equally in West and East. And so they foresaw everything that we're going through now, racial hatred, religious sectarianism, suicidal wars, genocide, all of these things. And they planned the technique of salvation for this age. And our line of gurus, remember, have come again and again at pivotal points in human history. They were there at the Battle of Kurukshetra, Babaji Krishna driving the chariot, Master Arjuna, and all of them were present, giving the world the remarkable Song of God, the Bhagavad Gita, which has brought inspiration and guidance and spiritual light to the hearts and minds, literally, of millions of people, billions of people, over the time it was first enunciated, that beautiful song of God, the Bhagavad Gita, the dialogue between Babaji and Arjuna, between Babaji and our master. They came again at the time of Christ. Master tells us they were the three wise men, Lahiri, Babaji, and Sri Teshwar. And they've come now, just as this pivotal time in history where mankind is faltering, it's floundering. And even though we are in Dwapara Yuga, it's a time of turbulence and unrest where one can become discouraged and lose faith in humanity if it were not for the knowledge that we share of the purpose of these great masters. So... In 1894, a man of 39 years, self-contained, quiet, 
scholarly man, decided to go to the Kumbh Mela in Allahabad. And that man, we know him as Sri Akteshwar. At that time, he, that he was, had not taken a monastic name. And he went to that Kumbha Mela, as we have read in autobiography. And the Kumbha Mela, for those of you who don't know, are these huge religious gatherings that take place periodically on auspicious times in India. Millions of people come. And some of them are great saints. Some of them are just curiosity seekers. Some of them are just hawkers and trying to get rich. And in the midst of all this, Sri Teshwar stood, and with not complete satisfaction, he thought, this is not where God will come. And he had the seed thought, surely the scientists of the West, patiently, quietly, trying to improve the betterment of mankind, are more pleasing to God. And he stood that in that moment than these beggars who are more thinking of alms than God. <clears throat> and he stood there with these critical thoughts. And just at that moment, a young man came up to him and said, Sir, a saint is calling you. And he said, Who? And he said, Come and see. And of course, it was Babaji, although he didn't know it at the time. And he said, I see you are interested. He called him Swamiji. Babaji called Swamiji. He said, I'm not a Swami. He said, those on whom I bestow the title, never leave it. And that was that. <laughs> sort of how many of us became ministers under Swami's <laughs> guidance. We heard it in a restaurant or someone else told us or whatever. But that informally. But in... He, then Babaji told him two things of great significance, again, preparing this mission to the West. He said, in years to come, I will send you a disciple for training of Kriya Yoga to disseminate it in the West. He said, I perceive flood-like they are coming to me, the vibrations of spiritual seekers in the West. There are potential saints waiting to be awakened in America and Europe. That was the first thing he told him. I'm going to send you a disciple to send to the West. The second thing he said, I want you to write a book comparing the similarities of the Christian Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. And he said, and when you have finished it, I will come again. And, of course, that happened. And then some Seventeen years later, in a very small alley, almost serpentine lane in Benares, Sri Akteshwar is standing there, and a young man, Mukundalal Ghosh, is walking, doing shopping for his the ashram in which he's living. And he he turns, and he sees that leonine figure of Sri Akteshwar. And it's the face that has haunted him, been with him in his dreams, in his imaginings. And he throws his parcel down and he tries to move, but then he can't. And he leaves it all and he runs and he touches Sri Teshwar's feet. And Sri Teshwar lifts him up and says, my own, you have come to me. Seventeen years after Babaji prophesied it. This was about 1911. Master was about 18 years old. 
And from that time, as Master said, for the better part of 10 years, he was under the training of Shri Teshwar. And Shri Teshwar was always intimating to him that he had a mission in the West. Do you remember once Master was sitting and Shri Teshwar was giving a discourse on the, on the Patanjali's Yoga Sutras? And, but his mind was a little bit distracted. He was thinking of three buildings that he had seen in his mind since youth, one on a plane, one on a hilltop, one by the ocean. And Sri Yukteswar, perceiving his every thought, said, Stop, your, your mind is not with me. Your architectural dreams will manifest in the future. Now is the time for study. And that, of course, the first one on the plane was Ranchi School, Hilltop, Mount Washington in Los Angeles, Ocean, beautiful Encinitas Hermitage. And he was always intimating these things. Then when they went to Kashmir in the city of Shimla, there was a little woman selling English strawberries. A master took one, and it was so bitter, and he spat it out. And so touching, Sri Teshwar said, when you go to America, your hostess in Massachusetts will serve you strawberries. She will mash them up with cream and sugar, and you will say, oh, these strawberries taste so good, and you will remember this day in Shimla. And so it was. And then when Master took formal Swami vows, July 1914, 101 years ago. Isn't that amazing? Sri Teshwar, instead of the traditional cotton, dipped white silk in the ochre dye, and he said, you will go to the West. And silk is more appreciated than cotton. And then finally, the intimation, Master asked him, did you ever meet Babaji, sir? And he told him of his encounter in 1894, which he had never told Master, and what Babaji had said about sending him as a disciple. And then Sri Yukteswar looked at him and said, you are that disciple that Babaji promised 17 years, or more than 17 by this time, that would be sent to the West. And so, always intimating, but not just the what the prophecies, but how he trained Master. We know with great rigor, great discipline, crushing every egoic shred in his consciousness, knowing that when he came to the West alone, he needed the strength of the 300 Spartans because he would be pulverized otherwise to come and the opposition he faced, the racial opposition, the uh, financial problems, the legal problems. Really, it it's overwhelming when you read about what Master had to go through. And if Sri Teshwar had not tempered his soul in the steel of discipline, he never would have been able to do what he did. And so then he began his school in Ranchi. And 1920, he's sitting there, and he has a vision. He sees these Western faces, and he says, Americans, surely these must be Americans. And he knows that he's being called. The moment has come.
and he runs and tells one of the students, I'm going to America. In this little school in Ranchi, it might have well have said, I'm going to the moon. And uh, then within a few days, he receives the invitation from the International uh, Congress of Religious Liberals to speak in Boston. And miraculously is able to book tickets on the city of Sparta. But before he goes, two very significant things happen. He goes, he's, can I do this? I mean, you know, we need to understand, we think of avatars. No problem, I've got this down, I've got it covered. But even Christ, even Christ, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, may this cup pass from me. He wasn't saying, oh, I can do this, no problem, crucifixion, you know, I got it down. (laughs) He was doubting in that moment. And so Master was saying, do I have the blessings of this great line of gurus to fulfill this mission? And he goes back to his family home where many of us have visited in Four Garpur Road in Calcutta, we had the great blessing during the Moksha Mandir to have the Ghosh family members, Somnath and Sarita, here with us sharing stories about Master's family. But he goes and he sits in that little attic room and he prays to Babaji, give me your blessings to do this. And Babaji appears to him and he says, you are the one. I have been preparing all this. We, Christ and Master, we have been preparing this. And you are the one that will disseminate Kriya Yoga to the West. And now is the time. And you have my blessings. And then on the eve of his departure, <clears throat> he finds himself once again at the feet of his guru, at the feet of Sri Teshwar. And Sri Akteshwar says several things to him. He says, it's now or never. All doors are open for you. And then he says two things of great importance. He said, you have great spiritual power. All those who come into your orbit, their lives will be changed just gazing into your eyes will change the patterns in their brain and make them less materially minded and think of God. And he also said, it is your lot in life to attract true friends, even in a wilderness, wherever you go. And Master said later how true those things were. He said, I came alone into a wilderness of materialism, but I never dreamed I would find the response and the friendship and the thousands of sincere seekers who came to me throughout my mission. And so he leaves and arrives on the shore of America. And as Jyotish described, everything that he did, unbelievable, churning the ether. You know, it's hard for us to think about what the West would be like if Master had not come, because his impact has infiltrated so many levels of life. But then, towards the end of his life, in one of the 
last editions of autobiography that came out before he passed, he outlines his aims and ideals. And they were, Jyotish touched on some of them, but one was to bring scientific techniques for knowing God, this concept of techniques. You prayed, you gave money, you joined the church, but techniques. This was, again, a breakthrough. And the techniques of yoga and meditation that now people accept commonplace. You know, even, it's a curious little offshoot, but there's a very well-known Hatha yoga teacher, uh, Bikram Yoga. He was trained by Master's brother, Bishnu, who is a physical culturalist. So even that stream was from that family. But to practice techniques to find God. You know, Master, in his travels, heard that there was a great saint living in a, a monastery, a monk, in St. Louis, Missouri. <clears throat> well, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and it was so reassuring for me to know that there possibly could have been a saint that lived there. But Master went to him, and he immediately, the man recognized him as a man of God. And Master said, let me teach you Kriya Yoga. He said, no, I have my path. I'm a, a, Christian, a Catholic. I do my practices. And Master said, you are like a man who's trying to leave a room, and you keep trying to go through the walls. Let me show you the door. You can still, all your love can be for Christ. And Master, and with that understanding, Master taught him Kriya. And the next day, when Master saw him, he said, for the first time in all my life of devotion to Christ, he appeared to me. And thank you for giving me this technique. So the brain, and that's one person. We're talking about the impact on a culture. And Master talked about also bringing together of science and religion. At the beginning of the 19th century, with all the scientific breakthroughs, these people were saying, we no longer need religion, we have science. But Master writes the autobiography of a yogi, and what does he do in it? Give example after example of scientific experiments and proof that substantiate everything he's been teaching about the use of energy, about... Uh, the possibility of consciousness in, in, in seemingly inanimate objects. But he showed, he brought together science and religion so that now uh, great scientist Einstein, you know, it's, he was able to perceive the farther out you go, the closer you get to God with science. And uh, astronauts like Neil Armstrong, many of them, have had transcendental experiences going into outer space, so much that they come back and their lives are forever changed. And Master paved the way to show that the farther we go with science, the more it amplifies our faith in God. And he showed also, he talked about the unity of all religions, and that's why he did the compare. And again, why did Babaji have Sri Teshwar write a book comparing the Bible and the Gita? Because that's what needed. 
the seed thoughts had to be launched. And more and more, particularly in America, people are moving away from established religion. Polls are increasingly saying, people say, no, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. And what does that mean? It means the forms of religion are no longer meaning to me, meaningful to me, but the experience of religion is very meaningful. And Master also talked about, <clears throat> and this is something I just noticed, and it's very important, all the other things he says to, to bring about, to do this, to do that. Then when he came to World Brotherhood Colonies, he said, to aid in the establishment of World Brotherhood Colonies. And I looked at that and I thought, he's not saying he's going to do it. He's saying he will help it to happen. And that's what Swamiji picked up on, that Master would aid him, but it was up to Swamiji and by extension all of us to create these communities where people can come together and they can exemplify spirituality, practical spirituality, spirituality in daily life, just as that incomparable passage an experience in cosmic consciousness where Shri Teshwar gives Master that first vision of cosmic consciousness, and he describes it. I won't try, even not having gone there yet, but just farther than the farthest star. And then when he comes down, what does Shri Teshwar do? Hands him a broom. He says, you have, do not get overly drunk with ecstasy. You have much work in this world to do. And that's communities. Go far as you can, farther than the farthest star, but then live practically. Do demonstrate how God can flow through you, sweeping the balcony porch after transcending it all. And so we've been talking about how Yogananda's mission changed the West. But ultimately... I think we all need to ask ourselves the question, how did Yogananda's mission change me? Because the West is a pretty amorphous place. You know, it depends where you're standing. What's West to people in Hawaii? What's West to people in China? But what Master came to do, remember he said, "I, I prefer a soul to a crowd but I love crowds of souls. So Master came. How did he change your life? Ask yourself that. Because once you ask and answer that question, you realize the living presence he has brought into your life. How has he changed your uh, understanding of yoga and meditation? I never never would have picked up this path if it hadn't picked up meditation, if it had not been for what Master brought. How has Master's teachings changed your health, mental, physical, well-being? Just the clarity of thought, energy, healing, all being able to do, live a dynamic life. If we never would have been able to live the lives we live with dynamic energy without the techniques Master brought. I know this for myself. Sometimes I think, how is this possible 
what we have to do. And we think, Master, as long as you flow through me, as long as I do my energization, my practices, I can do this. How has the practice of Kriya Yoga changed your life for those of you who have the initiation? And if you don't, get it. Get Kriya Yoga because initiation because it helps you to uplift the energy, to consciously bring it from centers of fear and anxiety and negative emotions and passivity and bring it to the centers of higher consciousness so that you feel, I can do this. I can transcend my ego if I just keep working at it. And how has Master changed you? He has given you the ability to be part of this spiritual communities movement. And I know every one of us who are a part of it, and I certainly speak from my own heart, I don't know what would have become of this lifetime if I had not been drawn into this orbit of community master Swami. It would have been a very shallow, very hollow life. And I am grateful every day. And then finally, how his master's missions changed me? It has given me my guru. It has given you your guru. It has given us the knowledge that we're not in this alone. Whatever happens, that incredible divine grace flowing from Christ and Babaji from time immemorial has come. And it's come to change you and to change me and to awaken us that we can find God in this lifetime without doubts, without self-recrimination, without thinking, oh, I'm not good enough, look at all the mistakes I made. None of that matters. Master came to bring us to God. As Jyotish was alluding, the time for knowing God has come. Not maybe, maybe you'll feel a little better, you'll stress relief, none of that. Part of that, but more than that, the time for knowing God has come through the grace of our guru, through the grace of our line of gurus, and this mission has changed my life. I know it, knowing you as my friends, I know it has changed your life. And one by one, this is how the West is changed. One by one, souls lifting up their hands and saying, I am free. I am free. Come join me in the dance that our, one, that our magnificent guru has invited us to. And let us float on the waves of bliss, no longer bound by the pulls and the burdens of this material world. We're going to end our classes this week in a little different way rather than announcements, which I know you all love, um, or even having music. I'm going to ask you all to stand if you can, and we're going to feel the inspiration of what our speakers have said, feel the power of Master, and let's share the heart of Yogananda with the world as we chant home together. Oh.
Shanti, Shanti, Shanti.